MK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korea news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. Welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslud. And joining me here in the studio today, Tuesday the 16th of January, is my colleague Shreyas Reddy. Shreyas, welcome back on the show. Great to be here. Uh, well, we've got a big story to talk about, and this is uh, following on from December 31st speech by Kim Jong-un, in which he said that uh, we're not interested in unification with South Korea anymore. So you've written a big story just yesterday, a big article, why North Korean websites are suddenly vanishing from the internet. What's vanishing? Pretty much started off with uh, everything that North Korea has traditionally used to target South Koreans and Koreans living overseas. So specifically, on, it began last Thursday when we spotted a bunch of propaganda websites going down all at once. So some quite fairly prominent sites, DPRK Today, Uri Minjokri, uh, Arirang Miyari, a few others that very much have a focus on South Korea unification themes and all. And I think... Is if that kind of started snowballing into other steps as well. We started seeing organizations dealing with inter-Korean matters uh, getting shut down. We saw radio stations that broadcast into South Korea stop airing. And on the whole, we've also seen a bunch of other minor changes here. They're just, in general, saying unification is not quite on the table. But beyond that, we've also seen a few signs that North Korea's extending that to social media. It's not just the websites, it's not just the traditional media outlets like radio channels. We're seeing the over the past decade, they've evolved their social media strategy a lot. And some of the more recent ventures that were perhaps not just South Korea facing, but even globally focused in some ways, those also started spearing. So at this point, we're looking and saying, is it, it might have started with South Korea, but could this evolve into something more? Could the websites going offline not have been a result of attacks or, or hacks or jamming by the South Korean government? I think certainly it didn't seem to be a targeted attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, from We've had a cybersecurity researcher whom we often work with when it comes to North Korea's internet activity yeah. looked into it and he said that essentially all the propaganda websites that went down, went down the same way. The domains existed, there were no server errors. It just looked like they were turned off. And as far from what where he was uh, standing, it looked deliberate. And in the wider context, that also appears to be the same. And the fact that since then, it's gone beyond the website. It has gone to other forms of media. It has gone to social media platforms that South Korea, the South Korean government has no control over. Right. It, Although, yeah. I mean, it, it does have... I have noticed looking at trying to look at some North Korean controlled Twitter accounts in the last few weeks that some of the actually South Korea can request a Twitter to to block some uh, Twitter accounts in this country. But you're saying that it's not it, that it's the actual it can, accounts. Have it gone can request down. them to block it, block them in this country, yeah. but not necessarily overall. Right. In some cases, it can. There might be cases you you can make a case for 
perhaps spreading misinformation files, something to say this is should not be there. But Twitter certainly does not have as strong policies on that as, say, YouTube, which mm-hmm. has been deleting a lot of North Korea-related propaganda channels over the past year or two. Right. Okay. So we've got Twitter accounts are down, Flickr, Weibo, which is a Chinese version of yeah of of Twitter, I guess, is it? It's kind it's of social it's, media. It's got, uh, got a lot. I think you can say Twitter equivalent, but it has a lot of its own functionality as well. And Billy Billy, which I'd never even heard of before reading your article. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're all down. And some of these uh, you're also mentioning sock puppet accounts run by the Sogwang Media Corporation. Just remind us who Sogwang Media Corporation is and. And where they fit into the picture? So it is a straight-run media co- corporation based out of Pyongyang, but uh, they've ha- had a lot of influence of, uh, in North Korea's external propaganda over the last few years. They had their own propaganda site, but that frankly was, al- was already inactive to some extent even before this began. Mostly what they have been doing is they've been overseeing different kinds of campaigns, including so these sock puppet accounts. What they do is... These are accounts that portray themselves as average people, average citizens, maybe third-party observers who have nothing to do with North Korea, a combination of a lot of different trends. And inevitably, what they do is they try and portray North Korea as a normal place to live, even a good place to live, and in some cases try to challenge uh, outside perceptions and outside reports of what life is like in North Korea. And the goal is always to say, oh, look, this isn't the state narrative. This, this is just an ordinary person. But inevitably, when you dig into these, you end up finding connections to the state. Usually, the people who are hosting these, if they're the Pyongyang residents who are on camera and showing what they're doing, you more often than not, they're from elite families, some with close ties to the very top of North Korea's hierarchy. And the ones which are more anonymous, which, for example, the their Twitter forays, where it was just photos of life in North Korea, inevitably rosy scenes of uh, happy life. Yeah. Those ones, there's no real person in front of the camera. Mm. And there's no one whom you... you uh, so it's essentially could be just handled anywhere from even the Sogwang office. Right. And Sogwang, as we understand it, is... Uh is run by the uh, the current uh, the wife of the current DPRK ambassador to Beijing, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so very much in the the elite rings of uh, of power in North Korea. So how do we? Oh, wait on before we go on. What about uh, the websites of KCNA or the Rodong Shinwon? Are they still up? Oh yeah. So North Korea's official state uh, top level state media outlets they're still uh, active. They're mm-hmm. still what essentially is going on so far is. They have mostly taken out these minor propaganda sites. I say minor, but they play an important role in the past at times. But they're not formally controlled by Pyongyang. In fact, most of these sites are hosted outside North Korea. Many of the propaganda sites that went down were in China, one in Germany. and But the official North Korean websites, the domains, they're usually hosted straight out of Pyongyang. So those are still active, that's where the top-level messaging will come uh, come through. So KCNA, Nolong Shinmun, Minju Joseon, those newspapers, KCTV, and uh, the uh, main radio station, the Korean Central Broadcasting Station, which I should point out is distinct from Pyongyang Radio, one of the radio stations that targeted South Korea and has gone down. Ah, so these sites that remain up, have they shown changes that, that exhibit a, a, this new policy? Have they removed things about unification or South Korea, for example? Yeah, so obviously, so these 
top-level media outlets that wasn't necessarily their focus to begin with, mm. but uh, for most of them anyway. But we've seen a few sites like Nenara, which is the official North Korean web portal, and uh, Minjujo's on the cabinet-run newspaper. Uh, so both their websites essentially removed content related to unification. So in the case of Nenara, they had a section on the principles of unification and they had songs about reunification gone. Minjo mm. Joson had had a section about uh, unification gone. And with th- that that's something that essentially also began before the propaganda sites were deleted. A couple of them, Uri Minjokri and Ryomyong, had material related to unification taken down. Of course, now the sites are gone altogether. Mm-hmm. So it's all moot, but the process was already underway. What what's happened to the the Tongil Shinbo? Yeah, so the the, uh, the unification newspaper. So that that's an interesting case because we've seen we've been trying to monitor that. Now the problem with the Tongil Shinbo is it only comes out internationally in the fo- in a print version. Uh-huh. So a PDF copy available through North Korean distribution channels, which are hosted out of Japan. And they ha- the last edition, it's a weekly mag- newspaper, yeah. but the last one was released on January 6th. So essentially, we should have had one on the 13th. Yes. We haven't yet seen one. But at the same time, we also haven't re- received new print editions of other newspapers like Pyongyang Times, mm. the English language weekly newspaper. Right. But at the same time, we know that Pyongyang Times is still operating because their website is still updating. Ah. It, it's just that Tongil Shinbo does not have a website, and so we're not seeing that. But even before that, we did see content related to Tongil Shinbo being taken off the propaganda sites that mm. are no longer active. So, I mean, how do we zoom out and, and look at this? What does this all mean? What are some of the specialists in North Korean media monitoring saying about all this? Well, I think the certainly perspectives vary. There have been some fears in certain quarters that this might be the worst case scenario. What if North Korea goes completely dark? What if it just completely cuts itself off from the rest of the world, at least in terms of the internet and more accessible media? And you can see why that concern might be there. Because I think let's not forget, North Korea's online uh, messaging activities are still, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, to Mm -hmm. be honest. A lot of it was started in later years of Kim Jong-il's rule. And then a lot of it was just taken to the next level by Kim Jong-un. So we saw the websites of KCNA and Nodong Shinmun turn up around the end of Kim Jong-il's tenure. And then under Kim Jong-un, more websites popped up. Social media activity proliferated. They started experimenting formats, different content. So I think there's that concern that, you know, Kim Jong-un might now look at look back and say, we didn't actually need to open up. We already, it was fine. But I think for the most part, the people we've spoken to look at it and say, this situation is not what it once was. Mm. Even back then, frankly, it's not like North Korea was completely dark. It had a wire service, which it used to communicate with the outside world. Sometimes other forms of material did slip out of North Korea, but obviously without the internet, it was harder. And even through the Japan-based affiliates, they used to there used to be KCNA updates on a Japanese-hosted website even in the 2000s. So it's not like they were they will completely go back to the dark ages. I think most people would say. And frankly, at this point, they've also learned that you know maybe you don't need to put everything out there. Maybe you don't need to put all the messaging out there, especially matters related to unification, which they're now striking out of their agenda. But 
it's still good to have some top-level outlets, some outlets, some channels of communication with which they can send a message to the outside world. And that message could be anything from condemnation of U.S., South Korean, Japanese activities to advertising their latest weapons development and saying, look how strong we are. Mm. So they'd still want to maintain some sort of channels. And most likely that will be the KCNA, KCTV, Northern Shinmun, Korean Central Broadcasting Station kind of outlets. Those ones will be there. As for their other, shall we say, slightly lower level outlets, or alternate forms of communication like social media. We've seen, uh, and w- where we stand right now is North Korea has essentially pressed, put a hard reset on its external messaging strategy. Yeah, it, do- it does look like, at least at the moment, Kim Jong-un is not interested in the persuasive aspect of North Korean messaging. He's not interested in convincing South Koreans or members yeah. of the Korean diaspora, whether in the United States or Japan or China, that uh, you know we're the better Korea, I'm the better leader, you should follow us. Yeah, but at the same time, I think perhaps there's also, there's also this possibility that they're realizing North Korea's propaganda, I mean, even if they've embraced new means of the past decade, mm-hmm. their material was pretty much the same as it was in the Cold War. It hasn't, their approach, apart from the sock puppet accounts and a few other exceptions, they haven't really uh, modernized their messaging. And so now, if they're shutting everything down, they also it's just as easily a chance for them to revamp how they uh, communicate with the outside world, what yeah. messages they send. So I think we still have to, I think we'll have to wait and watch, mm-hmm. see what comes next. But I think we shouldn't rule out the possibility that they may bring some of these things back. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily with a unification focus if they're saying that is out. That could always change. You never, ne- I mean, never say never. But certainly, the level, the thoroughness, and the speed with which they've acted, they seem quite sh- sure about what they're doing on that front. But will they want to completely cut themselves off from the outside world in terms of sending messages out there? Mm. Unlikely. I think there, there is a certain base out there for them, and there are cha- purposes for which they uh, could do with being able to broadcast out. And I think. Maybe at some point we may see some new form, if not the old forms just coming back with some tweaks. I'm curious to see whether North Korea starts its leafleting campaigns again, which it did almost consistently from 1950 until the uh, Olympic rapprochement of 2018 with a short break uh, in between. I think that could be uh, a way to go back to the old methods um, without having to you know, use internet. But We'll see. I mean, they, they did threaten to do that uh, in the latter period of Moon Jae-in's administration. Remember, they, they actually printed a bunch of leaflets and showed a photograph of blocks of these leaflets ready to be put on balloons and sent to South Korea. Never actually happened. Yeah, It's always a, uh, a tool that they could go back to. Is there anything happening this week or next week that we should be uh, paying attention to that might give us some answers as to how North Korea is changing its messaging? Absolutely. So, uh, well, uh, we're speaking on Tuesday. Yesterday, Monday, North Korea's Supreme People's Assembly, ah. essentially a rubber stamp parliament, but still an important body, mm-hmm. convened to for its session. We don't know how long it lasts, how long the session will last, but it usually lasts a couple of days. So yep. chances are by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have a full report on everything that's come out. Right. But from the opening day, we've already seen indications that there are some big changes in the offing. Kim Jong-un made a speech in which he essentially uh, uh, said that North Korea will change its constitution to ensure that North Koreans learn that South Korea is the Mm. number one enemy nation. And this isn't necessarily about, you know, the emphasis is on 
what you say in terms of education, what yeah. you uh, how you inform people. But that is a big measure. They've also in the past. So in the Supreme People's Assembly, they've gone and dismantled uh, three prominent organizations that deal with inter-Korean cooperation, including the Committee for the Peaceful Reunification of the Country, uh-huh. which has always been a significant inter-Korean organ from yeah. the north side. And they've also dismantled a few of them, slightly lesser organizations in the past week. So we're seeing these changes. And incidentally, they're also he also talked in a speech about dismantling, about demolishing the Arch of the Re- of Reunification in Pyongyang, which no. is a very prominent monument there. Wow. Okay. Gosh, a lot of things to uh, to look out for. So, uh, listeners, do keep up with the latest news on nknews.org. Shreyas, thanks for coming in today and giving us the latest news. After this break, I'll be interviewing James Heenan of the United Nations Office for the High Commission on Human Rights uh, to talk about the human rights situation in North Korea. So, stay tuned. Ever been sidelined when it comes to understanding South Korea at an important meeting, conference or discussion? You won't be if you become a member of Korea Pro, your one-stop solution to staying updated with the latest in South Korea's politics, society, economy and foreign relations. Picture this, every morning you wake up to a newsletter that gives you a full aggregation of all the top news and analysis. It's handcrafted by the producers of NK Pro and NK News, so you can trust it to save you time and keep you ahead of the news cycle. In addition, the Korea Pro Week Ahead newsletter flags upcoming conferences, events, and major diplomatic and business developments. And of course, there's in-depth specialist analysis to keep you informed on the top issues of the day, which you won't find anywhere else. Korea Pro is produced by a wide range of specialists, including in-house analysts and external contributors. There are no ads or sponsored articles on Korea Pro. Unlike some of its South Korean competitors, Korea Pro provides hard-hitting and objective analysis without hidden agendas. For my listeners today, I've got something special. Use the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe and get a 25% discount. Just head to koreapro.org slash podcast. Use the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe and get a 25% discount. Just head to koreapro.org slash podcast. That's koreapro.org slash podcast. Make the smart choice. Choose Korea Pro. Okay, and our long interview is with James Heenan, who is the representative for the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Seoul. He's worked for the human for human rights at the UN for uh, 20 years, and uh, his last position was in Palestine. He's also worked in numerous other places. You can find his office on Twitter at UN Rights Seoul. Welcome on the show, James. Thanks, Jacko. Great to be here. So tell us a bit about your office in Seoul, what it does, and what your role is. Well, the office was set up after the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in North Korea, which is was about 10 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, we were set up with a very specific mandate to monitor the human rights situation and report on it in North Korea. But also, we do other things. Most notably, we are charged with collecting information and evidence that might be used for eventual criminal prosecutions for crimes against humanity that were identified by this Commission of Inquiry I mentioned. We also do a lot of capacity building for civil society, for governments, for others, for victim-led associations. Here in South Korea. Here in South Korea, exactly. But we also, one of our biggest tasks, of course, is just advocacy to keep 
the spotlight on what's happening in North Korea in human rights terms. Has North Korea made any official comment on, on you or your office or its work? Well, yes, they, they do regularly. They don't accept the mandate of our office. They mm-hmm. don't accept mandates that they say are targeted against them. They had quite bellicose statements against our office when it first opened, I mm-hmm. understand. Now it's still not a warm embrace, but certainly it's, it's got a little bit more measured. Uh, I think they refer to me as the so-called head of the so-called office. Ah, okay. How long have you been in that role now? Just a little bit over a year. All right. When I visited North Korea in 2010, they took us to a number of bookshops, and one of them had a report on human rights in South Korea that was published by the something like the English name was something like the Investigation Committee for Human Rights Abuses in South Korea. Right. Something along those lines, and it was a uh, they published it in English. So they'd done an English translation of it, and it was by the time I got there, by the time I got it in, in 2010, it was already an old book. I think it'd been published in the mid to late 1990s. Mm-hmm almost exclusively relying on reporting by South Korean left-wing newspapers and magazines. So it, it wasn't doing any reporting of its own. It was yeah, based on South Korean media. And I don't think the irony was apparent to the North Koreans when they published it, that they're publishing a report about South Korean human rights using South Korean sources to show human rights abuses in South Korea. I mean, that's, I don't know how you would define that, but that seems like pretty close to the definition of what a democratic society should be, right? That you're able to report on your own abuses in your own society without fear of being in killed or put in jail. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty basic to freedom of information and, and so forth. But right. Yeah, it's, it's common in many countries, yeah. Is it part of your remit to also look at allegations of human rights abuses in South Korea? Because I could imagine that North Korea would say, well, why are you only looking at us? What about South Korea? No, it's not. My mandate, our mandate, is only on North Korea. But I work for an organization that has a global mandate. Yeah. The, the High Commissioner has a very broad mandate, ah. which was established back just after the end of the Cold War. And so in the early 90s, it was a very happy time for human rights. And so he he has a very broad mandate, essentially all human rights for all everywhere. So we do cover what's happening in South Korea, but it's covered from from Geneva. Right. Do you work together with Elizabeth Salmon, the special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea? Yes, Elizabeth is what we call a special rapporteur, an independent expert of the UN. We support her. So when she comes here on mission, we support her logistically and so forth. One of my staff members works full time with her. But she has her independence, which she guards, and we have ours, which we guard as well. But clearly, we're both working on the same issues. Have either of you, has either of you traveled to the DPRK? I don't think Elizabeth has, and I certainly haven't, no. That must make your job difficult? Well, it's frustrating. It's very odd to be sitting here in this hyper-modern city talking about very different reality, just 50 kilometers north of here. I mean, many people say that, but for us, it really is peculiar. It's not the only place in the world we have to do our work remotely. I mean, we should be in Pyongyang, but that's not going to happen just yet. Do you think it's likely that you will go there for a visit before the end of your term? I hope so. I don't think it's likely, but I would hope so. But like I said, we we do this in other places. Our our Syria team is outside Syria. Ah. Half of our Palestine team is outside Palestine. So it's human rights work is often the at the sharper end of Mm. international uh, you know relations. So. We're often outside the country. Now, almost five years ago, I talked to your, your predecessor in this position, Sina Paulson. That was already five years after the report of the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea had come out. And so that's almost, yeah, as you said, almost 10 years since the report was issued. Um, what is your assessment of the commission and its report, looking back after a decade? Well, the commission itself was a global sort of aha moment. It seemed to be the time, and I was a little bit involved back then, it seemed to be the time when people just opened their eyes and saw 
the North Korean issue or the peninsula issue, not just one in terms of non-proliferation security, but one in terms of human rights. So it was a groundbreaking commission of inquiry. We have many of these commissions of inquiry in the UN. In Palestine, where we worked before, we've had eight. Ah. So, so, but this one here really was a bit of a watershed moment. Now, since then, and that, that document remains our, 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 our sort of a guidebook, our North Star in many ways. But since then, a lot has happened. And one of the things, one of the messages I hear these days as we are around the 10th anniversary, I hear some people saying, oh, well, nothing's happened in the last 10 years. That's just not true. Mm. I mean, a lot has happened. Some people might say the only thing that needs to happen is a criminal prosecution of the North Korean leadership. Well, you know, we need to be reasonable in our expectations. But a lot of hard work has, been, has taken place. Just as a matter of respect, particularly for those civil society organizations that work so hard in documenting and advocating for human rights in North Korea, a bit of a disservice to them to say that nothing's happened. So my view is that a lot has happened. We have analyzed the situation in much more depth, mm-hmm. particularly legally. We've gathered a lot more information, gathered in human rights terms. Yeah, We have much higher visibility, particularly here in, in, in the Republic of Korea, but beyond. We have knowledge on behalf of the North Korean leadership that people are watching, which is probably 50% of human rights world or work around the world, is monitoring and documenting, puts people on notice that we're watching. And I think that's been effective. We've had, sorry, we've had some anecdotal stories that there have been some improvements in North Korea, and they've said because we know Mm. that we're being monitored. The report has not been without its critics as to methodology and its conclusions, and, and a decade has passed since the original research was done. Do you think it stands up well? Well, I mean, it was 10 years ago. The state of the art has, has advanced since then in terms of, of you know, even the tools available to us to gather information have expanded exponentially, particularly technologically. I think in general terms, it still stacks up. I don't think that the typology of violations in DPRK changes that much. I think it is a systemic nature of it that makes it, I won't say unchanging, but, but very stable in those terms. Many other places we deal with, there's a country that all of a sudden descends into civil war and then we, can, we and others come in and you're dealing with a totally new environment. And, whereas, you know, the basics of DPRK we've known for, for 70 years. So you say that the abuses there are a feature of the system rather than a bug? Well, certainly. Yeah, many of them are, absolutely. I mean, the lack of a right to privacy, the, the spying on neighbors, the inminban, the, the role of women in society, the, the use of political prison camps. Yeah, those, those things aren't just bugs, as you would say. They are it's integral parts of the system. With the increase in technology uh, that you refer to, and also you've, you've said that there's been eight commissions of inquiry in Palestine. Is it time for a new commission of inquiry into the DPRK and a new report? Well, that's something for member states to decide, but I'm not sure what it would add at the moment because there are so many people working mm. on monitoring and reporting on what's happening there. Right, you've got the Transitional Justice Working Group, you've got NKDB, you've got other organizations also building up databases of, of allegations of abuse. Yeah, so I think what many people feel is lacking mm. is attention to the issue in the, in, the, in the global geopolitical landscape, and that's something that's affecting everywhere. It yeah. was... Where, uh, in Palestine, where I was last, it was it was a, a key complaint that that the Palestinian issue was being submerged by other issues, particularly Ukraine, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. Well, now Palestine has certainly done something to rectify right. that, but but this, but there's a similar story here. So the question is, what do we do to bring attention back? I'm not sure a commission of another commission of inquiry is the way to go. And I also would say that eight commissions of inquiry in Palestine that is not that that's not normal. That shouldn't be like that. It's not that you just keep doing them every ten years. 
A few episodes ago, I interviewed uh, an American academic, uh, Jacob Reedhead, who had himself done some humanitarian work in North Korea back in the early 2000s and then sort of studied the discourse around human rights in North Korea and humanitarian work. Uh, and he said that it, his conclusions of his study were that the high watermark of interest in North Korean human rights was pretty much the time when the report came out. And since then, it's just been a steady tailing off for the last decade that there's a sense either Korea, in Korea or in South Korea or globally that, well, we've done the report. That's all we can do for now. We've just got to wait until there's change in North Korea. Well, it's not through want of people trying. I mm. mean, if there is a lack of focus on human rights in North Korea, I mean, why is that? Who's responsible for that? I mean, ultimately, agendas are set by member states in particular. Yeah, they, they decide what are the, the key issues to talk about in negotiations and so forth. Certainly, civil society has been strong and loud on this issue ever since. So they've done what they can. And I think so has the United Nations in terms of the secretariat, people like us. But it's part of the vagaries of geopolitical life. Yeah, what and, and the short attention span that people have means that as long as there's nothing in your face. Mm. And frankly, the COVID situation has maybe helped this because the drastic reduction of escapees from mm. a thousand or more a year down to about 60 or 70. Yeah means that there's less information, less human faces of what's going on. And if we're using information that's a few years old, then that's not going to get into the news cycle. Have political or do political swings in South Korea affect the degree to which it's on the agenda too? Well, here, certainly. I mean, it's, the, the current government is very open to talking about, as it says, universal values in North Korea. Right. The previous government, I wasn't here, but I understand the previous government w wasn't so much. But I mean, it's it's more than it's more than the Republic of Korea. We're talking globally. It's, it's beyond that. And I think I don't think that's made any difference to the the global attention. Now, in August this year, uh, Volker Turk, he's your boss, am I right? He is. Yes. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. He gave a briefing to the Security Council of the uh, of the United Nations on human rights violations in the DPRK. And in his statement, he said that. The people of the DPK currently appear to be suffering from severe economic difficulty and severe repression of their rights. Can you comment on that? Well, in that he was referring to the fact that this period of the COVID closures in particular, but building on the subsisting situation before, mm. but the closures meant that there was economic difficulty because goods weren't crossing borders either way and money in families' pockets, we know, as little as it was, was becoming even less. We also know that potentially as part of a increased repression, the, the, the markets, the Jungmadang, were being, were being not totally closed down, but severely constrained. We know that that was a coping mechanism for many people. So what he was referring to there was what we have understood, which is two things. People saying life has become much more difficult in economic terms for us and our families, but that's happened in the past. Life has become more difficult because of repression. We've had that in the past too, but we haven't necessarily had both things at the same time. Often when things are very difficult for the population, and you see this in many countries, the foot comes off the gas in terms of repression of it, just a little bit of steam. What we understand is that you have both these phenomena happening at the same time, and that's leading people to feel as though they're in a fairly hopeless situation. Are we seeing a level of malnutrition and starvation comparable to what we saw in the 1990s? No, I don't think so, no. Volker Turk also pointed to international human rights treaties and UN human rights bodies that provide, quote, a shared framework to identify challenges, address disagreements, and measure progress, thus helping to reduce tensions both within and between states. 
end quote. But the government of the DPRK has, as Mr. Turk says, cut itself off from these much-needed sources of dialogue. What can be done when a country cuts itself off from source of dialogue and continues to use economic resources to boost productions of weapons and satellites uh, rather than take care of its people? Well, this is an interesting phenomenon. I've spoken so far mostly about the sort of the harder end of our work, which is monitoring and accountability and so forth. But the UN always has an engagement approach. I mean, DPRK is a member state. Mm-hmm. It's one of essentially my board of governors, yeah? Right. So so we always deal and work with member states. And that's and DPRK is no exception to that. We we meet with them, we 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 try to work with them. Not here in South Korea. Not here. No, not my my job is peculiar, but right. in Geneva and New York ah. we, we meet and we talk to them. Now and in the past there has been you know capacity building and technical assistance happening. Not a huge amount, but again a number of member states also are in a similar situation. What the High Commission was talking about there was particularly in human rights terms, that the human rights framework, which is treaties and reporting on treaties, special rapporteurs, that framework is quite significant at the moment. And that provides an opportunity for a state to engage with the human rights machinery. DPRK doesn't reject the human rights framework. It accepts it. It plays its part. It's ratified five treaties, which is not the top of the class, but mm. it's certainly not the bottom of the class. Mm-hmm. It's reported under them. It's continuing to report even this week to, mm. to treaty bodies. So it is engaging with the system, and that's that has to be preserved. It engages with another process called a universal periodic review where all member states turn up and get recommendations from other member states on the human rights situation. So for me, this is a bright spot that the DPRK continues to engage, and it says you know, we don't want to engage with parts of the system that just target us, like our office or the special rapporteur. Right. But if we're sitting all around the table multilaterally, mm-hmm. fine, we're happy to be there. And again, DPRK is not the only country to take that approach. In fact, almost every country in the world takes that approach. Mm. Don't target me. If you, if you try to target me, I'm not playing ball. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying it's right. This is just the reality we've seen. So, so the engagement side of things is super important, and that's what the High Commissioner was talking about. Could you tell us anything about what it's doing or expected to do this week? No, well, what I meant was that the reporting under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, ah. which is an area that DPRK is interested in, mm. they have a report due and they essentially have submitted that report. We weren't sure if they're were actually going to send it in. They've just submitted it and now they will, the committee that oversees that treaty will schedule a date maybe later in the year or early next year, later next year. And we'll have a dialogue. The government will turn up and answer questions about its track record on persons with disabilities. I understand that's an area of, of, uh, of human rights that North Korea has been willing to engage in after the publication of the report of the Commission of Inquiry 10 years ago. Yes, one of a few. Yeah. And is that because it, it's kind of low-hanging fruit for North Korea? It's kind of an easy area to talk about? I don't know why. Mm. Um, it may be that it doesn't touch on certain vital interests, mm. but... It certainly is something that, along with some parts of the women's rights agenda, and to an extent children, and to also certainly to an extent climate change, that the government sees, sees the need and the benefit of engaging with the international community. You, you mentioned uh, technical assistance, which uh, Volker Turk also talked about in his statement to the Security Council. He encouraged the government of the DPRK to respond positively to his offer of technical assistance. And I'm curious as to what that technical assistance might look like if the DPRK were to accept it? Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a scale, yeah? And we're dealing, with a, we're dealing with a member state who has been essentially shut off for a long time mm. and who hasn't really participated in many of these things. So 
we start off with very modest steps, you know, some sort of getting together with the diplomats who have to write reports to the treaty bodies, for example, the one on, on, on disability. So getting them together to talk about how, what quality of data is required by the committee, how to present it, what mm. the committee will be looking for, what sort of questions they're likely to ask, how to be prepared, you know, those sorts of very basic steps, which we've, we do in every country. And then, of course, the, the scale goes up and up and up. Ultimately, it would be very important, I think, for for there to be an in-country mission on you know, strengthening a national system of protection for human rights. Now, when, when you say this, people roll their eyes and say, oh, but it's North Korea. Well, many countries, a number of countries have been in this situation before and people have rolled their eyes. But human rights is a long-term project and we've seen remarkable progress in some places in the world, starting out quite modestly. It's a matter of getting people around the table. It really is. Well, and, and that is that. That's uh, yeah. Getting people around the table is the uh, the heart of the matter, isn't it? Uh, reading the the five page briefing by Mr. Took, which is very sobering, it struck me that his report ends with hopes that North Korea will reopen to the world and interact with the United Nations again. So again, that's part of that getting around the table, and it, it emphasises that in situations like the DPRK, as you say, it's not the only case of its kind. The UN can really do nothing if the government of a given country doesn't want it to, doesn't want to engage, and. Now that North Korea is slowly reopening from its self-imposed three and a half years of isolation, will your office and, and, and uh, the office of the Special Rapporteur be trying to engage with the DPRK government from a fresh start? We, we already are, absolutely. And yeah, I, th- I think we've talked also about COVID, about mm. building back globally after COVID, a bit of a fresh start. But DPRK, it's a very strong fresh start. And we would hope that the proposals we've made for, for working together will eventually see the light of day. Some people say, you know, this country or that country, country A or country B, they don't really care about human rights. There's no point talking to them. And it's like, when you look at how much effort, both human and financial effort that countries put in to not being criticized for human rights, that, that for me, that's an indicator of how seriously they take human rights. Yeah? Both, well, intrinsically, meaning they feel that people have rights and they're entitled to them, or instrumentally, well, we want to be look, we want to look as though we're doing well on human rights because that'll give us credibility in other areas. So, I think I think DPRK in that way is similar to many other countries in seeing that human rights is essential for them in moving forward. But th- those efforts by the DPRK government to avoid being criticised, it's hard for me to think of anything apart from pointing the finger in the other direction at the at UN meetings in Geneva and New York. Uh, are there other things that it does that, that you can think of in terms of expending effort and, and resources in trying to avoid criticism? Well, it certainly follows absolutely everything that's done on, on DPRK and human rights, I think, at least what's done here mm-hmm. between us and the government here. and, and So and they're civil reading society. all the Absolutely, all your absolutely. They, they, they react. They put a lot of effort into reacting mm. to things. The, the responses aren't just, uh, uh, you know, uh, simplistic slogans. They, they yeah. do get into details. They might say things that, you know, we, we don't think are necessarily true. Right. But can you imagine a situation where you didn't even have that sort of engagement if mm-hmm. you had a country that just didn't even respond and said this is just an alien Western concept that we're not going to get involved in? When we're not there at all. Really. Are, are there any in the world that take that approach that basically we don't even recognize the concept of human rights? It's, it's Western imposed. We have our own concept. No, there's not many. No, there's uh, some armed groups, I'm sure, sure Daesh, oh, yeah. Daesh and others are like well, that. But uh, 
No, and this is this is the value of the United Nations as a normative organization. Everyone is around the table, meaning that everyone signs on to these things in the charter. You you, uh, you said that the United Nations has a, uh, a policy or a principle of, of always being open to engagement, but I'm, I'm wondering, and I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering too, why is suspending DPRK participation in the UN and its bodies and agencies not an option? For example, temporarily sending the DPRK diplomats home from New York, Geneva, and Vienna, and wherever. Well, I mean... Those sorts of things happen in a bilateral way between member states, yeah, saying we're not, we're not playing ball with you anymore, so forth. With a multilateral organization, it's built on multilateralism, meaning that what, what standard are you going to use, yeah? So if you say, well, our standard for deciding whether someone's been a, been a bad person and we don't talk to them anymore mm-hmm. is if they haven't you know, done all their reports to the treaty bodies. Well, you'll be left with a handful of about five member states sitting around the table on that. It's a very, very risky race to the bottom if you start going to that extreme. But it's not as though it doesn't happen. I mean, DPRK is a subject of multilateral sanctions adopted under the the UN Security Council. So those things happen. But to say, no, we're not even, you don't even turn up, we're not going to talk to you anymore. That's that. That's a bridge too far for you. And that's not what the, that's not the vision of the charter. What happens sometimes is that if member states don't pay their dues, mm. don't pay their money, they can lose things like voting rights and so forth. That's a very mechanical thing. Yep. But to say that we're not talking to you anymore, that's, that's not the vision of the Charter. Well, what about, say, I don't know what the size of the current DPRK permanent mission to the UN in New York City is, but if let's say they've got 24 people there and you say, well, we only see three people turn up to UN meetings. Well, the rest can just go home and, and leave the other three here. Well, that's not for the UN to decide. Ah. Uh. At all. Okay. I want to move on to a report that was released by your office in March this year entitled These Wounds Do Not Heal, and it's about enforced disappearances and abductions by the DPRK. What do enforced disappearances and abductions mean here? Well, enforced disappearances globally is, you know, the situation where someone is taken with, by a state actor or with the connivance of a state, and their detention is not recognized. They don't say what happened to them, where they went, where they're held, whether they're dead or alive. They just deny knowledge. Now, the big movement in, for, in enforced disappearance law really came about during the Argentinian juntas, where mm. we had enforced disappearance in Argentina and Chile and Uruguay and other places, were a feature of those dictatorships. Here, it's much more complex. In respect of DPRK, there's two major types. Here. One is enforced disappearance of North Korean nationals in North Korea. People going to political prison camps, just disappearing. You don't know what happened to them. Yeah, right. Classic, classic case. You know, if the government said to the family, "Your son is in this political prison camp up here," that mm-hmm. wouldn't be an enforced disappearance because you know where they are. You right. Know, it's not. It's not just detention. It's 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 this absolute. No, we we didn't have anything to do with it. There's no information. So that's one form. The other form is is foreigners, and that's where it, or, or at least people from the peninsula and foreigners. Mm. That's where it becomes very peculiar. We have the non-returned POWs from the war, yeah, 100,000. We have the non-returned, we have the the civilians who were essentially kidnapped during the war, taken back with the retreating forces, who they weren't soldiers, so they weren't POWs. Right. We had civilians taken after the war, like the Korean airliner and Mm -hmm. other things like that. We had the Japanese civilians who were abducted from Japan. We also had uh, nationals, and this is not very well known, of probably seven or eight other countries, Lebanon, right. United States, Germany, China, who have also been abducted. 
so that that that's the contours of it here. Some have been returned. Some of the, some some have escaped and returned. But most of them, we have no idea what happened to them. Now, it's interesting that this is the one serious human rights violation and probably crime against humanity mm-hmm. that North Korea has admitted to. It admitted to it in respect of the Japanese. When Kim Jong Il met with uh, Junichiro Koizumi back in two thousand two, exactly. And yeah. they said, we'll send, we're, yes, we had them. Yes, we're sending them back. We've got yes, five that are them. alive, we'll send them back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's quite peculiar. Mm. It hasn't admitted to the other one. No. Now, on J- Japan, I know that this report of yours was particu- of particular interest in Japan, where you've already mentioned that, yes, some people there were, uh, were simply taken while walking on the beach or on the way from school to home. And, in fact, you spoke at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan in April this year on the back of that report. So I know that this issue has been in Japan for decades. And the North Korea will argue that it dealt with it all back in that meeting between Kim Jong-il and, and Koizumi in the early 2000s. Why is it still ongoing? Have more people been abducted in Japan since? Or are there some cases that are still pending? Well, there's, there's, there's two issues. The first one is that, yes, we don't know how many there are. Uh, the recognized number of abductees is essentially just over a dozen. Mm-hmm. But there's up to about 800 potential others, meaning people whose disappearance can't be explained wow. at the moment. And they could have been. Not all of them, no, no. but they could have been. Yeah. Um, certainly amongst those who were returned <clears throat> and the remains of those who returned, they weren't the people they said they were, according to forensic testing. Mm. So, no, at least, and for the government of Japan, as, as we understand it, they feel as though this, this story is, certainly isn't over. The other side is the Paradise on Earth campaign, mm-hmm. which is where you had... Uh, an inducement to Koreans living in Japan after the war to go back to North Korea. and they Just were, under 100,000 of them. Exactly. And they were shipped back on the inducement that it was indeed Paradise, Paradise on, on Earth. Earth. Yeah, And that wasn't the case. Now, I'm not saying, we're not saying that they are all enforced disappearance because the, the, maybe you could find out where they are. But certainly a large number of them mm-hmm. will have been. And the reason we know that is because we know that foreigners who go back to Japan, even Koreans who have spent a long time abroad, are treated with suspicion. They're put in a relatively suspect social class, Songbun. Ah, you mean when they go to North Korea? When they go to North Korea, sorry. Right. Yes, yes. So, uh, and that means they, li- they, they under suspicion, they can disappear, they can be banished and so forth. So, so all of those typologies mean we've probably got 200,000 uh, people who have been possibly wow. disappeared. And under international law, the families of those who disappeared are also victims. Right. So we're talking millions of people impacted by this, which is why it's such a big issue, which is why we did the report. And in writing your report, your staff conducted 80 in-depth interviews over a number of years with victims, so either the direct victims of enforced disappearances and also their relatives. So once again, I imagine that there are incredible limits in writing a report like this when you can't go to the country where these things are accused of being you know, alleged to have happened and you know, the government won't talk to you about. What's the logistics of that? How do you find 80 people to talk to? Well, if you're going to write a report from outside a country or a country where you have no access, enforced disappearance is the thing you want to write about because you don't actually need to go into the country that much uh-huh. because you can't, you're not going to find the people. What right. you need to do is you need to establish the facts mainly from the family. Who say, you know, there was a, there was a story of, of, of a family in the southern, in the southern provinces here in, in ROK who said our son, he was 19, traveled one day to another city, never came home. We had no idea what happened. And then 20 years later, someone said who had escaped from the north. It's a long story, but mm. said, I think I saw your son on the street in the north. So it's, that, it's, it's grabbing those sorts of stories. 
Now, the fact of disappearance is, you know, you can establish that fairly quickly. But what's interesting this is what we try to focus on the report. Well, what's tragic is the impact on the families. Yeah. And here the impact is very interesting. Okay, there's, there's, there's the despair, there's the lifelong burden. Whatever happened to these people, where are they? But then also, particularly in the Republic of Korea, people came under suspicion. Oh, your son disappeared to the north. That means he probably was mm. a spy or whatever. And, and the suffering of some of these families is really, it really deserves a lot more attention. Now, North Korea's response, as often when it's criticized in the areas of human rights, is to get very indignant and angry and complain that it's being treated unfairly. Uh, do you see this as a, as a tactic by the government of the DPRK? Is it complaining in good faith? Well, sometimes there may be some basis to it, but almost every member state will do the same thing. One of the major complaints about UN work and human rights is selectivity. You're attacking us. We're seeing it now in Israel-Palestine. We're seeing it in uh, Ukraine, Russia. We're seeing it in Yemen, uh, Saudi. So it's not such a strange thing for us. Is it in good faith? Well, these, these are statements made in political fora, so mm. you know, they, are, they are political. Our position is that you know, the, the, the best way to move forward on this issue and to maintain the objectivity of, of, of monitoring, including UN monitoring, is to give us access. And so we can have a look and see and uh, verify things. Were there any abductees who escaped uh, who were directly interviewed for this report? Uh, yes, some, particularly some of the POWs who escaped back, yes. Mm, okay, and th- they've certainly gone through a decades-long uh, ordeal, haven't they? It, the stories are unbelievable. Yeah. You know, essentially, young people who, who then all of a sudden had war, you know, having a relatively normal life, then war visited upon them, then right. the horrors of war, then, then decades of, of being trapped in the north. And then yep. the, the journey coming here and yep. then coming back here and many of them are annoyed, feeling like they weren't recognized when they came back here. So right. what, a, what a story, incredible stuff. Mm. Yeah, and the, uh, you've already talked about just the diversity of, of the typology of people who have been uh, uh, abducted and disappeared. We've got the South Korean soldiers and civilians from the war. We've got the South Korean fishermen, the crew of the airline that was hijacked, the Japanese citizens, the citizens of other countries like the Lebanese woman who was uh, abducted and, and given to an American defector in marriage. Such a diversity there in terms of origins and, and how and where and why they were abducted. Is there anything that unites them that brings all these cases together? Well, what's interesting is, is that the common factor that's usually there isn't there. So enforced disappearance in Argentina and Chile back mm. in the day, in Syria much more recently and other places, enforced disappearance is usually used as a way to spread terror amongst the population. It comes from Nazi Germany, the, the Nebel und Nacht, I think it is, when they just, they, they perfected it. It was just making people disappear into the fog. Right. Now here... In terms of North Koreans forced, being forcibly disappeared now, yes, maybe that's part of it. That's sort of part. But but they they weren't doing this to spread fear amongst the Japanese population or the South Korean population or the Lebanese population. It was it was a much more instrumentalized. Yeah, we wanted Japanese teachers. Right. We wanted wives for American servicemen who had defected. We wanted laborers for whatever. We wanted smart people to help with setting up the state, which is. As I understand it, the civilians who were essentially kidnapped by the retreating armies during the war, those civilians were professors and doctors. Ah. And so it was, it was brain power, sometimes mm-hmm. brawn, but mainly brain power to build the state. So it's a very different place to other wow. contexts. I just see here in my notes belatedly that last week was actually the 64th anniversary of the first boat departing from Japan carrying the Zainichi Koreans to uh, in that Paradise on Earth campaign. So 
yeah, it, it's amazing how long lived some of these things are, right? I mean, even the in South America, the, the juntas eventually went away, and then people were able to talk about them publicly. But uh, here we are, 64 years since the Zainichi, 70 plus years since the uh, the prisoners of war. We were at the event last week in Niigata. Ah, we spoke at it. It's what you say is absolutely right, and this is why there's urgency because. The the people who were disappeared, yeah. their families, right. and the perpetrators are all now in their eighties and nineties. For many of these, yeah, if they're cases, alive at all, yeah. alive at all. So, and the other interesting thing about the Japanese one is that the abductions and the Paradise on Earth were both centered on departures from generally Niigata, this one town on the on the west coast. Now, chapter six of your report, these wounds do not heal. The, the chapter is called uh, "Victims' Perspectives on Truth, Justice, Including Accountability and Reparations for Violations Suffered as a Result of Enforced Disappearances." A long chapter title. It's got eight subsections of wishes that the victims and their families express vis-a-vis the North Korean, the DPRK government, all the way up to prosecuting the supreme leader. And it was sad going through that chapter because it really felt like. At this stage, at least, there's little to no hope that any of these wishes will ever be fulfilled as long as the current leadership of the DPRK is in place. And if ever there is some form of systemic change or deep reform in North Korea, the new people in charge will be unlikely to take responsibility for these matters that happened before them. What do you think about that? Well, I don't, uh, yeah, I I don't see it exactly the same way. First Mm. of all, we're talking about victims of human rights violations and they're entitled to remedy and reparation. Uh, so we see accountability in two ways. One is judicial accountability, holding perpetrators to account. Now, that's, we do a lot of work on that. There's not a lot of pathways at the moment that are immediately available for the mid, short to midterm. I don't see prosecutions happening in the next few years. But that's been the case everywhere, and I think eventually there will be, yeah? particularly, particularly around unification. Excuse me. But after, you know, there could be, we've seen in other places, Syria, Nepal, uh, other places where people have been prosecuted. But the other side of it is non-judicial accountability, which means giving something, giving some form of accountability to victims that doesn't involve criminal law. So, and that's what you, you know, memorialization, recognition, uh, compensation, uh, truth-telling. Mm-hmm. These are things that lie in the power of other member states, not just the DPRK. Uh, and, and we have it happening here. We have a number of proposals for memorials here now and museums. Mm. Uh, we two, have, two people who were abducted to yes, the north. Okay. Yes, we have, we have the government moving on the issue of, of, of recognition, particularly in terms of, 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 of the former servicemen. We have, there has been compensation schemes here already. And some people say to me, hold on, why should ROK compensate? The DPK right. is crime. Well, you know what? When you've got a victim in front of you, they're still suffering. You don't yeah. just say, sorry, I'm not the person. You got, it, it doesn't work like that. Mm. So... That's why, for example, the compensation given out by the, ICE, the International Criminal Court in the cases of like Cote d'Ivoire or whatever, that, ca- that didn't come from the state or the warlord. It came right. from the fund yeah. the court has set up. So one of the things we're saying is that fund should be set up ah. right? so it can provide some sort of modicum of compensation. Yeah. Now, there are some things on which this country and other countries are responsible. So I mentioned before people who were put under surveillance by the security services and you know couldn't find a job and whatever mm. because their brother disappeared you right know, that that's the responsibility of the rok yeah but 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 beyond that what our interviews showed is that yes people want accountability they want to see kim jong-un or the leadership or someone before a court but m- many of them particularly for this crime they want to know what happened to their loved one i just want to know that's mm. what they say i want the remains back so i can give them the burial we wanted we always wanted to give dad yeah. or whatever and I want recognition. I don't want to be this person in the shadows where 
in the neighborhood where everyone says, yeah, that their daughter disappeared or, or whatever. And that, that happens everywhere. In Japan, we heard this story as well, where I remember speaking to the brothers of Megumi, the most famous yes. Japanese abductee, saying, you know, people made fun of them mm. because when just immediately after it happened, right. because the sense was, yeah, she's, she's, just, she's just disappeared and gone and, I don't know, married some guy up north or something. So, right, a teenage runaway. Yeah, so, you know, all that. You can't compensate everything, but you no. can at least recognize it. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems to me that there's a risk here in the Republic of Korea that given the way that political swings occur, right now the government's certainly taking a, a firmer stance on North Korea, so it would be more, I think, open to having a memorial or creating a fund or doing whatever. But then, you know, if, if another government... Uh, on the other side of politics comes in, that they may be inclined to, uh, to put a stop to that because that ten- tends to be what happens, right? That defected refugees from North Korea are either encouraged or discouraged to speak openly depending on which party is in, in the, the presidential office at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wasn't, I've only been here yeah. in, under this administration and we work, we work with, the, with the, the, the Republic of Korea, not, you know, it doesn't matter what the government is. Right. And, and as I understand, we also had that, not much of an impact on our work under the previous administration, but nationally, <clears throat> that happens in many places on human rights. Mm. That's often the key political issues that are dividing political parties these days. People try to say they're culture wars. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really questions of rights. But I would hope that these things will be sustainable. I would hope that they, the actors here and in other countries, look at what's happened elsewhere in the world because. We're not pulling this out of the out of thin air. This is what we've had in South Africa, in Colombia, in many countries have been through these processes, which are essentially transitional, a form, a part of transitional justice. Yeah. And at the end of the report, your own office lists, I think, a bunch of recommendations that are starting with twelve exhortations to the government of the DPRK. Uh, I haven't yet seen any movement by the DPRK in response to this in the nine months or so since the report came out. Have you? Do you know if they've read the report and if they've responded to it? They would certainly have read the report. There was an initial brief response. Ah. It really is, uh, I mean, um, nine months is an extremely short time in human rights terms. In many places, if there was an egregious situation and you wanted, you, I don't know, some immediate injunction on something, it could happen. But in almost all countries, even legislative reform takes much longer than that. So we're hopeful. I realize that it might sound a bit pie in the sky to expect change quickly, but that's not the only purpose of the report. The report is also documentation. It's saying this is what happened, this mm-hmm. is what we found, and everyone's fixed with knowledge about it. No one can say we didn't know about this in the future. And on, on that point there, James, do you ever get the feeling that maybe you and, and your office and your colleagues are chroniclers, early historians, writing down things that can't be fixed, but at least they won't be forgotten. That's a big part of the work. And, and we know that from countless other situations. The sort of the human rights work that we and the, particularly the civil society organizations do here, it's in it, 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 some way it's frustration and frustrating and thankless work, but it's essential because it's so easy. We know it's so easy to deny what happened in the past and say, well, sorry, that prove it. Yeah. yeah. It's also on the side of the accountability work. So collecting evidence and information for a possible future trial it sounds it is interesting work but mm. it's 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 very uh, it's it's quite a hard grind because mm. you're just you're waiting for a prosecutor to turn up at the door saying actually you know what i want to start a, a start a case right. if they don't turn up you're just doing it for years and years and years 
But when it does happen, it'll be key, I think, I hope. How much longer do you have in this position? Probably another three years. What, what do you want to see done during the rest of your time here? Well, I'd like to see us be doing more work with this issue of accountability to try to make sure that everyone's on the same line about what's feasible and what's not feasible because we, we're always nervous about raising expectations mm. amongst uh, victims and so forth. We'd like to look at more specific areas of human rights. I think an area, for example, of children hasn't been looked into enough. We've said that we want to look at the links between human rights and peace and security because that's the engine of the international debate on the peninsula is peace and security. So right. how can we look at the human rights side of things on that? And I'd like to I'd like to contribute to having a bigger profile for DPRK by having more involvement by North Koreans in everything we do. And, and when I say we, I mean all of us on DPRK. There's 33,000 escapees in this country. And so I can't see a reason why, for example, you would have anything, an event or anything, without a, without a North Korean in the room. It's, right. it's, it's a bit like the old nothing about us without us. Right. Are you, you mentioned the peace and security. Are you mentioned about the securitization of human rights, the linking of human rights to, uh, to weapons of mass destruction and other issues? What I've discovered is that it is a very understudied area. And when you say it, it sounds simple, but it's, it means many different things mm. to many different people. And it's not clear exactly what we're all talking about. So for some people, linking it is saying, you know, children having to participate in the harvest in the north as a form of forced labor, that contributes to missiles. And then others say, hold on, these missiles cost $15 million. You can, it's tiny. Right. That link is so tenuous. It's mm. nice to say it. Others say, well, it's all cybercrime that does it. It's not human rights that funds militarization. It's not human rights abuse. Others say, well, it's only about the nucleus program and not about the broader militarization army program. I think we're still trying to tease out exactly what it means. But certainly, the, okay, the very basic links about use of resources for militarization has to be looked into. But also the way the sort of militarized society what that means for women and children for example and also for men who have to do these very years long of service, years of yeah. service you know in human rights terms there's a lot to unpack in there yeah what's needed and i think that the the gendered aspects yeah women women being the wheels of the revolution behind the men who are the you know it's it's their gender and human rights issues to be addressed in every country so i i think there's a lot to unpack in there and I would hope that next time a missile goes off that we're not just talking about peace and security, but we're also mentioning the human rights aspect. Well, I, I wish you good luck with your endeavours and there at the, uh, the United Nations Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Seoul. Thank you very much for coming on the NK News podcast today, James Heenan. Thanks, Jack. It's my pleasure. Listeners, you can find James and his office online on the Twitter at UN Rights Seoul. We'll add a link in the show notes and also to the report that we talked about earlier there, These Wounds Do Not Heal. Thank you very much. Ever feel overwhelmed with the complexity of trying to understand what's going on with North Korea? Don't fret, NK Pro is here to help. Built on the strong reputation of NK News, NK Pro combines decades of experience with cutting-edge technology to offer the best in North Korea-related information. Here's the deal. You get daily analysis and exclusive news 
along with amazing research tools that let you tap into a vast range of open source North Korean information such as state media search and data extraction, real-time ship and aircraft movement tracking, and A to Z directories of people, companies and organizations inside and outside the company. Yes, you heard that right. NK Pro is perfect for those in policy, business and research who need quality, reliable and timely insights. It's not just about staying informed, it's about understanding the key signals that can change the course of the future. So why wait? Dive deep into the realm of North Korea with NK Pro and navigate the landscape like a pro. After all, knowledge is power. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>